Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who may not know, I'm Pastor Norb. I'm also uh, one of the pastoral staff members here at TCC, and uh, I have the privilege of bringing God's Word uh, this morning. You probably have walked into uh, like a home decor store, or maybe you even have one of these on your wall already, but you've probably seen these signs that say like house rules or family rules. You know what I'm talking about? You've probably seen them. They say things like, you know, be thankful. Good idea. You know, help each other. Laugh out loud. Be happy. You know, all these little prompts about, hey, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves within our home. Frankly, and no offense to any of you who have them, I think they're a little cheesy. Now, you probably wouldn't see one of those signs with Colossians 3, 18 through verse 4, verse 1 uh, in a store. You probably wouldn't want to even put one on your wall because your neighbors would come in and start reading your house rules and you'd go, wow, these guys are a little bit weird, a little bit wacky. And there's no doubt that sometimes we come to passages in the Bible that we would rather skip. They can be hard teachings. But I think a passage like this is often harder than it really is because maybe we just don't understand it or we misunderstand it, which is kind of like not understanding it. But I hope this morning that we can bring some understanding to this passage so that we can all experience the joy and fullness in the relationships that we have. I think there's something here for everyone, obviously. There's wives, there's husbands, there's children, there's parents. And so if you are a child... And maybe you're single and you want to be married. There's some really important truths to, um, to grab hold of in this particular passage. And we come to this part of Colossians, as I said last week, where the Apostle Paul has moved away from some of the, the theological truths to the practical implications of how we then live uh, this truth out. And as followers of Jesus, what in fact does the Christian life then look like? And one of the things when it comes to understanding the Bible is to remember three things. Context, context, context. It's always about the context. Because if we just looked at, say, verse 18 and pulled it out and we hadn't really considered the verses before it or the verses after it, we'd likely come away with kind of completely missing the point. We'd have a, a skewed understanding of that. And so it's always important to look at the immediate context and then the whole context of the Bible. And remember who it is this morning, for us in the context, in the media context, I think it's important for us to remember who it is that Paul is in fact writing to. We've said this before, but this is now a group of believers that had gathered together. They were known as the church at Colossae. These were people who were once separated from God. They were alienated, but they had now been reconciled and been made right with God. Together they are all in Christ. Together they are the church. And they are, as we learned last week, God's people, chosen, holy, loved, and as such, they are people who put on the clothing of Jesus. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And if that is our perspective, if that is the way that we enter into relationships you know that a lot of other things can then fall into place and take care of itself. Now, when we live like this, it is within the church community where we first really find the need for these virtues. 
as people who are being transformed by the Spirit of God, is within these relationships where we can practice like putting up with one another as we learned last week, or forgiving one another. Because as you know, in relationships, there's often minor things, things that kind of creep up that annoy us a little bit, where we are best served if we can just bear with one another. And sometimes in relationship, as we probably most have experienced, we, we get hurt. And in those situations, we can forgive one another as the Lord forgave us and enter then into a, a process of reconciliation. Now, if you paid attention last week or you're following along, you know that that was just a quick review or summary of the message from last week. Now, we can't forget love because love draws all of these pieces of clothing together. And so simply put, as members of God's church, as people who are then in Christ, because they had received God's grace by faith, they had been made right uh, with God, collectively now we live under the lordship of Jesus. And so that's why when you come to a verse like verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever you do, as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a parent, as an employee, as an employer, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, our priority is to love and honor and obey Jesus within the church and within the home and within the workplace. And so Paul moves then from the the larger context of the church family to address the uniqueness of relationships within the home, within a Christian family. And it's different. And it may sound weird. And it's why our culture will react so strongly to verses like verse 18. But if the work of God's grace is real in our lives, there is in fact going to be evidence of that in the way that we then ultimately live our lives. Because back in chapter 1, when Paul was just opening this letter, he said that he was praying for these Colossian believers, and he was praying that they, he was praying for their knowledge, he was praying for their wisdom, he was praying for their understanding. And then he comes to verse 10, he says, so that, okay, so that you have wisdom and knowledge and understanding, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, the Lord that you profess, the Lord that you profess as king. Worthy of the Lord, and then please Him in every way. And so today, we will see that, in fact, our homes should be these giant billboards that advertise the impact of the gospel on a life that willingly surrenders to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. And so whatever we do, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's no uh, fancy way to, to come up with this. It's, it's very straightforward, I think. I thought of different, um, you know, ways of capturing this. But I'm going to look at just what I see as three sets of exhortations uh, together here. And so first is just wives and husbands. Wives and husbands. It begins in verse 18 with this verse. Wives, submit yourselves to the husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And it's a little jarring, and I think I'll just leave it there and let you figure out what that means all by yourself. <clears throat> you see, 
it's important for us to understand a few things when you come to a verse. Again, I said about the context, so think about this in the context. Paul is not addressing the role of women in society. He's addressing Christian marriage. A marriage in which both husband and wife are Christians. And that is why this is really important. That's why I spent setting up uh, the context a little bit more. You see, Paul <clears throat> is, is often given a hard time. And maybe even the Bible in general is dismissed because people will look at something like that and just say, well, that's such an archaic view. How can you even believe that? Well, the reality is that in the Bible, <clears throat> and particularly Jesus and Paul, speaking into that ancient world, women, in fact, were elevated. The fact that Paul even addressed the women present among them was radical. They were given dignity that, that the ancient world had, in fact, robbed them of. And since verse 17 was written to both wives and husbands, and both were under the lordship of Jesus, they were, in that sense, equal. And Paul is saying to the women present on the day that this letter was first read to them, he says, you, as a Christian wife, you have a crucial, vital role that is assigned to you by the Lord. It is fitting in the Lord. And God's design for marriage is that it follows the order of creation. There is a hierarchy, but this in no way means that the wife is inferior to the husband. You can go and read Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 15 through 25. And, and, and in there, you'll come to appreciate this, this idea, this, this concept of equality and submission. Uh, let me just try to illustrate it this way. Just think about the Trinity for a moment. When we think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we say that that God is three in one, that there's three co-equal, co-eternal persons that make up the Trinity, and they are equal. And so the Son, or Jesus, is both equal to the Father, but he's also submissive to him at the same time, right? So Jesus is fully God, but then he is able to say, but I do what the Father tells me to do. I do what the Father asks me to say. And that's why Philippians chapter 2, I know I had made a note somewhere in my, in my, um, in my notes. <laughs> Make a note in your notes. Um, Pastor Adam had read that, and, uh, and it was just so fitting. But that's exactly what Philippians 2 is saying, that God was, that Jesus was fully God, but he didn't grasp onto that equality so tightly that he wasn't willing to submit and become obedient to death on a cross. As one commentator put it, we're talking here about, he says this, equality and submissiveness can, in fact, coexist in human relationships. So equality and submissiveness can coexist. Now, there's no doubt that this is a jarring statement. And the temptation is to try to explain it away, to soften it, to make it more comfortable and palatable, but sometimes we just have to take God's word in black and white and see, take it for what it says. And it follows God's design. God's design for marriage and for human flourishing. It is a good plan. But human nature, being what it is, has never liked this. They rebel against the S word. So God's perfect plan and design was messed up from the very beginning. 
And today, our culture still pushes back at God's design for marriage. There exists still, not still, it increasingly seems, a fundamental opposition to a biblical view of sexuality and marriage. And this is why Paul added the little phrase at the end, I believe, as is fitting in the Lord. Because he says, in marriage and order and roles, Jesus ultimately is Lord and he's Lord of all. So this exhortation, in fact, he says, is fitting to all of that. Now, it might not fit our agenda, it might not fit our preferences, but that's not the point. The point is, is it fitting to the Lord? Submission, ultimately in this context, isn't like a slave obeying a master. The expectation here isn't that this means doing, you know, whatever the husband says. This isn't about doing something sinful. That's not any part of this. Or even just doing anything dumb or irrational, for that matter, isn't included. And so if we're looking at this verse and we're somehow picturing a husband issuing commands and a wife obeying his orders, then we're actually totally missing the point of what the New Testament teaches. Paul is speaking here specifically to roles. He says the Christian wife's role is to submit to her husband, which quite simply means a voluntary self-giving to a lover. Okay? A voluntary self-giving to a lover. Because submitting to a lover who ultimately has to face his own radical exhortation. Because if you think wives submitting to your husbands is difficult, look at what the men have to do. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And we have to try and appreciate that even in the ancient world, this was just as a radical exhortation to the men as the exhortation to the women was. Because under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was a possession. She had no equal rights. A husband could just discard her at will. And so all of the privileges belonged to a husband. So can you as a husband imagine living in that context, maybe actually acting in that context, and then hearing this for the first time? What do you mean? Don't be harsh with them. Because being harsh was sadly quite normal. And so Paul says to us in our context, husbands, love your wives. This wasn't a, a romantic or erotic love. This was, in fact, a command to agape love, a love that involves thoughtful care and loving service that's intended for the well-being of the wife. It's, it's a love that absolutely puts your wife ahead of your own interests and desires. Now, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 33, that expands on the type and quality of the love that Paul is, in fact, calling for here. And and Tim Keller has written a great book, co-authored, I believe, with his his wife, just called The Meaning of Marriage. So, and and it, it, it completely unpacks Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. So, if this is something you want further reading in, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller and his wife is a highly recommended resource. But we're going to just look at one verse for a second. There, Paul writes, husbands, love your wives. Okay, so it's exactly the same. He says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Jesus set the example and the standard for a husband's love for his wife. 
So let's just think about this for a bit. How did Jesus love the church? And I just boiled it down to these, the, these two ideas. Number one, Jesus came. Okay? He stepped into our world. And theologically, this is called the incarnation. So Jesus' love was an incarnational love. And so we might ask, what might that look like if we as husbands imitate Jesus's incarnational love? What does that maybe look like? Well, it means a couple of things, I think, right off the top. One is, as husbands, we first and foremost seek to understand our spouses, our wives. We step into their world. What does she like? What are her needs? I need to understand that because in order to actually demonstrate my love for her, I need to know that this is actually, um, you know, fitting for her. So seek to understand. Uh, Secondly, spend time together. To spend time, it seems so obvious, but it actually is a beautiful thing when you can say of your spouse, this is my best friend. We are best friends where you find activities that you enjoy doing together. And you spend time together. And one more thing. You listen to her. When she's talking, you put the phone down. You turn off the TV. You listen to her heart. You hear her heart. You then can pray for her. You can thank God for her. You can pray for the needs that you now understand that she has. And you can ask God to help you. Maybe you're in a position then to meet those needs. But Jesus came and he demonstrated this incarnational love. And secondly, he died. And not only was Jesus' love incarnational, it was sacrificial right? We know that Jesus died for us. He died for the church. And so as husbands, we should be willing to die for our wives. Literally. That's what he's saying. Husbands, if you're not prepared to die for your wife, you're not meeting the standard that God has established. But maybe this is just even a daily dying. Maybe in some ways that's the harder. (laughs) Dying to ourselves day after day. Dying to our selfishness. Dying to our pride. This is where I had Philippians 2 in my notes. I won't read it again, actually. It's a little bit ahead of where Pastor Adam read, but Paul, I think I referenced it last week. Because again, it's just everyone should have the same mindset as Christ. Putting the others first. Do you see how this works together? The principle can be summed up like this. Submission is a response of love to love. Okay? Submission is the response of love to love. The husband loves the wife. The wife submits to her husband, each as a reflection of their commitment to Jesus and their surrender to the lordship of Christ. Now, incidentally, uh, or maybe just as an aside, this is why if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is vitally important that you marry a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, they may say they're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to date long enough to actually see evidence of the fruit of that kind of a life. 
Because you will never be able to get to this depth of a loving, submissive, sacrificial, incarnational love that Jesus, that, that, that Paul writes about here. Tina and I have been married 27 years. She's put up with a lot. You know, it's embarrassing to think of how often I've not lived up to the standard of love that the Bible calls me to. I know that I can be dreadfully selfish at times in the context of our relationship. I say to Tina when we, when we, we have a little spat and there's tension and I'm quiet, part of me just says, just leave me alone. I'll spend enough time with God where he will convict me of my sin. <clears throat> so let me just process this. Just a quick example of <clears throat> getting into some of these things. And some, this is going to seem like a really insignificant example, but 10 years ago this wasn't. We had just moved uh, to Edmonton, and God, God had blessed us with a home backing on to a park, some green space. In fact, I think we all oh, that's a terrible picture. I didn't realize how bad it would look. But, but this, is, in fact, is in our backyard. Um, it was after a hail and rainstorm, and you'll notice that there's just black chain-link fence, uh, really quite drab, uh, no privacy whatsoever. We did have a tree where that puddle of water is, but I think it got drowned out a lot and it died. And I just wanted to turn that into a fire pit. I'm like, I, I'm not going to plant another tree. It's backbreaking work, digging a hole, all those kind of things. I don't want to do it. And I didn't want to do any other planting, but Tina really wanted to. And she wanted to put shrubs up and she wanted to put cedars and she wanted to make it look nice. For me, that was nice because it was easy to cut the grass. I could just zip around the, the fence with the, with the weed trimmer, go back and forth, and I'm done. I didn't have to navigate around any plants. I didn't have to hold them out of the way, all of these kind of things. Well, <clears throat> if you go to this next picture, this is what it looks like now, so you'll know kind of where we ultimately settled on this. <laughs> and what you don't see is a, a cedar hedge to the side and gives us some privacy from our neighbors, and it's a beautiful space. But if I had stayed with my head and my logic instead of listening to Tina's heartbeat, I would have stayed on the picture on the left and I would have missed the opportunity <clears throat> to have just a, a, a beautiful space in our backyard. That's on Tina. That has nothing to do with me. Actually, it has something to do with somebody that attends our church because I shared this illustration. This is almost 10 years ago. And after the service, because I told him we were at this loggerheads and none of this was happening, we didn't know what to do, and she was being submissive to me, I wasn't being very loving of her, and he came to me after, and he pressed a check for $200 into my hand and said, go buy your wife some trees. <laughs> <clears throat> so thank you, I did. And now Tina wants a new car. <clears throat> So wives, husbands, when we each do our part, when we each embrace our role, when we live for the other, that is when we can avoid some of the problems that are naturally associated with our self-centeredness and an unwillingness to serve one another. Friends, that's how God designed marriage. That's how it works. That's how it works. So let's go on. Children and parents, I won't spend as much time on this, I don't think, but verse 20, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. 
And just like with the women, Paul's teaching here elevated the position of children in the culture of that day. Fathers had power. Fathers had control. They could sell their children. They could turn them into slaves. They could do whatever they wanted. Now, obedience on the part of the children assumes that children have been taught and that they actually have rules to follow and to obey. And as parents, we then have the responsibility to set these boundaries. We, as parents, have the responsibilities to teach and to instruct, to teach the Word of God. Parents, this is on us. It's not the responsibility of the church in in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. The church can supplement what's happening in the home, but you need to take what's being taught maybe on a Sunday morning, whether it's online in the kids' community or whether it's in person, whatever the kids are learning, they're coming home with their little sheets, and you can sit down at dinner time and say, well, tell me about this. What does this mean for you? And you walk this through, and as they get older, they have harder questions. But that's on us. The command here, then, is also very straightforward and direct to you children, right? Obey your parents. There's no real qualifications there. And this kind of obedience actually includes the idea of listening. Listen to your parents and do what they ask. That's what he's saying. That's why, as parents, we might say something like, listen, curfew's at 11 p.m., right? You need to be home by then. No later, right? So what are you doing as a parent? You're setting boundaries. You're setting expectations, Now, you might even follow that up with, did you hear me? What time are you supposed to be home? 11, good, yeah, you heard that. And what will happen if you're not home by 11? Maybe you've outlined the consequences to that, whatever that is. But you have done that, and then you say, did you hear me? Did did, did you understand? But it's more than just hearing and doing. Because we all know that when it comes, even as children, when we think back to ourselves, we have the capacity to have this kind of resigned compliance where we just kind of like, whatever. Right? Don't tell me none of your kids have ever said that to you. Because they think you're archaic and you're old. In my case, that would be true. but, But it's qualified here. Children, obey your parents in everything. Okay? So that is very broad for sure. And then automatically the question is, well, are, are there in any way any exceptions? Are there any exceptions to this? I mean, of course there are. Because a child should never be asked to go against Scripture to obey anything. And so everything does not then include anything that is sinful or irrational or harmful. But obedience in everything, Paul says, pleases the Lord. Pleases the Lord. You bring delight to Jesus when we bring... Uh, Uh, our obedience to him, and we demonstrate that in obedience to our parents. It's a simple and powerful command to all children. And the house rule here is that children have a duty to honor, respect, and obey their parents. And they must accept instruction and submit to correction. But verse 21 is now the other side of this. Fathers, or we could easily say parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And if you look at a little study of that word embittered, maybe you have a Bible and it uses other words like provoke or exasperate or aggravate, right? It's all the same thing. Because if you do this to your, to your children, you will ultimately discourage them. They will become discouraged. They will lose hearts. And the Greek word for what parents are not to do carries the sense of irritating a child either by nagging or deriding them or putting them down. 
Again, in Ephesians 6, these parallel passages, Paul there writes, do not provoke your children to anger. Right? So again, you see the same idea of irritating them through this perpetual fault-finding. Children who live under this constant criticism of parents. You've never done this right. You didn't put your shoes away right. You, you didn't hang your coat up. What do, we, what do you do? You left the door open. You live in a barn, right? We can come out with all of these things. <clears throat> and I would suggest to you, if you think back to how, as believers, we're supposed to clothe ourselves, compassion, kindness, right? We talked last week about that. Kindness is the words that we use. Humility, gentleness, patience. You see, as parents, when we, when we bring that to the relationship, we recognize that a child's obedience is ultimately nurtured by love and praise. Because I don't think any parent intentionally sets out to say, you know what, <clears throat> I'm going to annoy my kid to death. I want them to be so discouraged. I want them to just be so pressed down and beaten. You know, that's what I'm going to set out to do. Nobody thinks like that. But it happens, doesn't it? I think there's a number of ways that we can affect our children in this way, where we can embitter our children. And it's in areas like when we have harsh and overly strict rules, right? Instead of having loving and fair rules. When we're inconsistent, particularly maybe inconsistent in our relationship with them or in our discipline even. When, when, when we bring home some of our own irritability or our grouchiness, right? We had a bad day at work, and so we take it out on the kids. Can't do that. Or sometimes we might even just keep distance. I don't quite understand that, but friends, there's no substitute for spending time with your children, and when you spend time with your children, to be fully present. Now, you can make your own list. Maybe you come down with a pad of paper and a journal today and you pray, God, am I in any way, have I embittered my children? Is there something that I do? And maybe if they're older, you might even say, you know, can you help me with something? Do I ever annoy you? Is there anything that I do that annoys you? And be prepared for that. Here's something going on over here. So just make your own list. And here's the thing. All of us grew up being parented. And some of us maybe weren't parented well. And we all remember maybe how, how parents discouraged us. And I've talked with many men over the years, many who have issues well into adulthood simply because it can be traced back to a poor relationship with their father growing up and things that their father did or said to them, things that they were never able to process. And if that's true for you, I want to just really encourage you today, do two things at least. Just be, be honest and step into it and address some of those wounds. Get help. Go to a counselor. Because being freed from some of that will, in fact, set you free and do some incredibly healing and good things in your life. And secondly, I would then say, commit with God's help to then not repeat some of the same mistakes with your kids. Because that's what we do. We don't intend to, but we do. So parents, don't embitter your children. 
Lastly, servants and masters. These aren't languages that we use very often, but verse 22, let me just read it and then we'll go on. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And so we look at this and immediately we think of 19th century slavery. But in the first century context, slaves in most cases were actual members of a household. They were domestic servants. They were part of the family. It was more of a socioeconomic class than it was anything else. They were, in fact, the workforce. And it wasn't a a racial class of imprisoned people cruelly forced into labor. Now, that's not to say that in the first century, slavery wasn't full of inequalities and injustices that needed to be addressed. And that's why Paul writes what he writes to the masters. And he writes a lot here. He actually writes more about this subject than than even what he wrote to wives, husbands, children, and parents. So it may have been more complicated and nuanced that required Paul to, to maybe write a little bit more to try to clarify this. But in many homes, slaves, slaves, in fact, enjoyed considerable freedoms. They had rights and responsibilities. They may have served as tutors or nannies or cooks. In some cases, maybe even doctors. It said that 35 to 50% of the Roman Empire would have been classified as a servant or as a slave. Over 60 million people. So when we read about slaves and masters here, we should see this as very unlike the brutal race-based slavery of the 19th century or the sexual slavery of women and children in the 21st century. That is outright horrific. And applying verses like this to that context would be entirely wrong and awful. But one thing we know is that the gospel changed everything. You see, the gospel brought equality to everyone. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one, what? In Christ Jesus. They're one in Christ Jesus. Equal standing before Jesus. Equal value, equal dignity, different roles. And what Paul says here to slaves and masters, as we'll see in a moment, was revolutionary. Again, remember, he's writing to the Christians. He's writing to Christians who have submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus. These are Christians who are in Christ. And the parallel for us today would be the context of our own vocation or our work. And so the application here of these last three verses of of chapter 3 would would in fact be uh, appropriately applied if you are an employee. And in, in that context, then you need to exhort, um, or Paul is exhorting us rather, to live Jesus in the workplace. And he addresses some very specific scenarios. So let me ask you, how do you work when the boss isn't looking? Right? Isn't this a challenge of this day and age where so many people are working from home and nobody's actually looking whether you're playing solitaire or not? How do you work with sincerity of heart? Or do you work with sincerity of heart? Like, is there some enthusiasm and some energy behind your work? That's what Paul's asking. And there's important rationale, he says. It is for the Lord. And throughout these verses, verse 23, whatever you do, so whatever you do for a living, work at it with all your heart. Do the best as working for the Lord. 
not for human masters, since you know that you will receive inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so it comes back to this all the time. Think about your employer and say, you know what, it's not ultimately that that's who I'm working for. I'm working because I'm a follower of Jesus, and in this place, as a teacher, as a plumber, as a lawyer, as an electrician, whatever I do as an accountant, I am going to bring my best because I want to honor Jesus with it. And Paul is directly addressing how being a follower of Jesus should impact our work ethic. Now, it's not a call to workaholism, but Christians should be, I believe, in fact, the best workers. You come to work on time. You have a positive attitude. There's dependability. There's integrity. You're courteous with the people that you work with. You're honest. You're reliable. And so then, on the flip side of that, how do we employ, how do we, if we're an employer ourselves, verse 1, masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And again, remember now under Roman law, the slaves had no rights at all, so these words would have sounded strange. Again, radical in that context. But the reality that Paul was getting at is that both servant and master have, in fact, the same Lord. You have the same Lord. And as a master, or in our context, an employer, you have to realize that you will answer to God for the way that you conduct your business or for the way that you specifically treat your employees. And so what does this mean? Well, you care about them. And you care about what happens in their lives. You ensure that they are paid fairly. You're concerned about their health, their families, and their education. And you do that because you have a master in heaven. Friends, these house rules are evidence of the impact that is made when followers of Jesus ultimately submit to the lordship of Jesus. Wives, husbands, children, parents, employee, employer, following Jesus does in fact impact our marriages, our families, and our vocation. It's not always easy, and we can face hardship and heartache in any one of these relationships. And that's why we need Jesus and the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to empower us, and to help us fulfill the role, to meet the task to which he's called us. Man, parenting today, those of you who have young children, <laughs> I don't envy you. It's hard. And our culture makes it increasingly difficult. And so you need Jesus. You need the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that where there is any murkiness, any misunderstanding or even just reaction to this in a, in a negative way. I pray that you would give us the ability to, to process that and further our understanding, whether it's through further study or further prayer or further conversation. But Lord, sometimes 
when we see something in black and white, it's, and it just seems so unreasonable or so old-fashioned or whatever we might say, so not with the times. I pray that whenever we think about life, we recognize that you have a plan and you have a purpose and you designed things in a certain way to work in a certain way and all of these things hold themselves together. And it's through our sin that we have destroyed so much of what is a beautiful design by you. So God, I pray. I pray for the marriages in our church right now. And we know that in general, we have heard collectively that COVID has made it so difficult because suddenly now everybody's home and everybody's working in closer proximity and it raises more attention. God, I pray for those marriages right now that are struggling. I pray that this would not be a word that that would be pushed back on hard, but it would be just silently coming before you and saying, God, help me to align my ways, my thoughts, my words in a way that is honoring to you respectful of my spouse. I pray, Father, that where help is needed, where intervention is needed, that there would be the courage to step into that. And that you would bring healing and restoration to marriages. Father, I pray for families, moms and dads. I think of those that have children zero to five. And it's hard. And they're tired and exhausted. And there's so many things that come at them so hard and so fast sometimes. I pray that you just give them energy and courage and strength to embrace the role that you've called them to. That they could create the kind of loving, nurturing environment where it's not difficult for children to then say, I, my parents set fair boundaries. And I want to honor them because I ultimately want to honor Jesus. And so, Lord, wherever we're at today, I pray in no way that a message like this would be heavy or discouraging. I pray that it would give hope and life for what you intend for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.